Welcome to the Talent Development Think Tank Podcast. The number one podcast for learning and talent development professionals. Now here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome to the Talent Development Think Tank Podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for another great interview and conversation to help you up your game and improve your capabilities in the world of talent development and learning and development. And I've got a good one for you today, covering a number of subjects around learning and development. And the main focus here is when you come into a new L&D role, how do you establish yourself and figure out what are the right things to do, the right things to focus on, the right things to invest in? We've done a few conversations on that recently, and I know there's a lot of you out there in that type of situation, whether you're starting a new role or going through a transformation or updating that role and the team and, and the strategy. And uh, this conversation is going to give you quite a few things to think about. My guest today is Hillary Miller, who is the Chief Learning Officer of Penn State Health. She's also a trusted executive advisor, a connector and a collaborator, and someone who's worked in the healthcare field and learning and development field for many years. She has been in her role as the Chief Learning Officer of Penn State Health for the last two years. And during that time, she's gone on a full listening tour talk to many executives to figure out exactly what's going on, what the challenges are, what the needs are, what the objectives are, and then came in and started investing in different places, putting her team together and strategy together, revamping, onboarding, and new hire orientation, among other things. And she shares a lot of that in this interview, including her three strategic pillars for talent development, learning and development, and how she is addressing those and how she creates some of the learning programs they have. So it's going to be a great conversation for you. I want to remind you that before we get into it, this podcast is sponsored, as always, by the Talent Development Think Tank membership community. This is the number one community for people in talent development to learn about the latest trends, hear from great guest speakers, connect with other people in talent development who are doing the work that you're doing, and share challenges, objectives, and best practices so we can learn and grow together. I've been running this community since 2020, and it has been just a phenomenal opportunity for people to connect with each other and build relationships in L&D. And if you're not a member yet, come check us out. Our website is tdtt.us and just click on community, just tdtt.us and click on community. All right. Now, without further ado, my interview with Hillary Miller, the Chief Learning Officer at Penn State Health. Enjoy. All right, Hillary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's so great to have you on. We talked a few weeks back and we had such a wonderful discussion and I was just really, we're aligned on many things, but I was really excited about all the things that you were doing there at Penn State Health and really your approach and process to creating a culture of learning, psychological safety, and all the things that you really focused on doing. And I was excited to, to be able to share that with our audience. I know we have a lot of people who can learn from your experience and the things that you've been doing. I'd love to start with your background and how you got into this space of, of learning and development. Sure. So it's a it's a fun path. I always like to let people know that there isn't really a direct path into some of this. Yeah. It's a culmination of a lot of different things. So I started my career, formal career in public education as a, as a teacher in really specializing in reading intervention, learning disabilities, deafblind autism populations. And we had a, a position change for my husband, which resulted in us moving to another state. At the time, school districts really didn't have openings in the things that I was certified in. 
So I said, you know what? I have adjacent skills. I'm going to go into healthcare. There's a really prominent healthcare center there. And that's really how I got into healthcare. And then it became learning everything I could. I did everything from quality assurance to health information management to ventricular assist devices in the heart transplant administration area to EPIC and electronic healthcare record conversions. Everything drew on my education skills. So even if the primary title or role was not about your responsibility is all learning, learning was heavily woven into every single aspect of that. And then I came back around into more of the management. I excelled into management pretty early. And we'll talk about that in the podcast here, some epic failures and some great successes. But it looked like me drawing on skills that I had, but also being a consummate learner. So I knew what I didn't know and harnessed that, asked a lot of questions, got a feel for the things that I had a natural ability in, and then became wildly aware of the things that I wasn't. And I was really fortunate to get aligned with individuals who helped to mentor me and to Mm -hmm. coach me. That's really where leadership happened in all of this. So fast forward. It's not like I had a goal when I first started in teaching to to be a a chief learning officer. That title didn't really, wasn't uh, prominent at the time. And then those things just started to align and then took on increasingly more strategic roles, which I find is my happy space, and then Mm. ended up with Penn State Health. It's hard to believe it'll be two years in December, which is really, really exciting. That is really exciting. And something that I think is uh, unique and interesting about your role that maybe this wasn't possible before the pandemic, but you and I both work remotely. You work for Penn State Health as a chief learning officer. You do not live in Pennsylvania. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And for some people, that's like, a <gasps> how do you connect with the community if you're not actually living in it? And I had to talk with them about, you know, community can happen in a lot of different ways, but that we can't limit people by proximity. And so when I am on site and in person, because I I do hybrid work, I am out in the community. I align my schedule to events. I go and meet with people physically. I go and round at the hospitals. And so I think that's the difference maker is more often than not, people actually don't know I don't live there because (laughs) when I am there, I'm present. And I I think Mm. that that matters a lot. Yeah. There's something to be said for that because- you know, you could argue, hey, we want somebody that lives locally here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that person is going to get out in the community talking to people. In fact, they may never get around to it because they'll say, well, I'll get to it at some point, but I have all this work to do versus you may having focused trips where you're like, okay, I'm here for six days or whatever it is, five days. I'm going to get really active in the community during this time. And then I have a week away. And then when I come back, I'm going to be really present in the community again. It almost forces you influences you to get more involved. It's very intentional. Yeah, it's very intentional. And actually, it's really helped me to align activities. So whether that's an event at specifically at one of our hospitals or something that's happening in the government locally or something with one of our college partners, I will let them know, hey, I'm getting here's my travel schedule. What are all the things that you're aware of that are happening at that time? And I can start slotting things in, which is really fun. Yeah. It almost reminds me, this is kind of a silly metaphor, but when you visit a city and you know, you may, you may never go there again, you see as many like, you know, of the sites, tourist sites as possible, right? When you live in a city, 
some people never get around to seeing like the tourist sites. They're like, oh, I'll get to it someday. And they don't ever get out to do it. And then I'll visit somebody in the city and be like, oh, yeah, I've done this and this and this. And they'll go, oh, I've never been to any of those places. I'm like, you've lived here for five years. <laughs> You've right. never been to the Statue of Liberty. You've never been tourist. to. You know, I'm going to take that away today, Andy. Be a tourist. Yeah. Be a tourist in your own town. You never know how long you might be there. It's okay to be a tourist. It's actually fun uh, to go out there and experience and, and talk to people and uh, and see the sites. You mentioned getting into management. I, I definitely want to dig into some of those lessons learned from that. But was there a, you know, you talked about like pulling the the education background and the teaching and learning into all you were doing with these implementations and things. Was there a moment along the way where you sort of had this aha and you thought like, wow, I really love this idea of learning and development where I can really help other people, you know, achieve certain things in the workplace? Yeah, I that happened for me early. I, again, my brain sits more on the strategy side. So it's almost like puzzle pieces constantly coming together is how I think of things. And when I got into healthcare within the first year, I immediately started seeing the intersections. But it just wasn't one of those things that people people looked at a job description and it was have to have mm -hmm. so many years in X. And I'm like, but why? Why I can learn that. And so I started those conversations very early. And at the time it was felt super radical for people. But I was like, let me show you how that could could look and work. And then the words learning and development started to formalize and things like organizational development were becoming more prominent. And then I started getting certifications and more intentional around those areas and activities. But it was really just breaking it down simply for people to say, we're actually already doing that. This is just a language you haven't heard before. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, you talked about going out and getting involved in the community, being present. And you're coming up on two years in this role, taking on this completely new role as chief learning officer there. How did you go about getting acclimated and figuring out where are the areas that where you need to invest from a learning and de development perspective? I remember when we talked before, you said you went on a listening tour. And it was something that I really wanted to dig into because I think this is really important for other people to think about as they're starting new roles in L&D. Yeah. So I didn't know that right out of the gate. I had a sense just from being in healthcare for now going on like 15 years, I had a sense of where the needs were probably more prominent than others. But I set those to the side because I didn't want to make any assumptions. So when I talked with people, when you're initially, especially when you have an inaugural role that's sitting at a much higher level than like a department leader, where it's looking across a much broader group and it has tentacles all over the place, Getting the definition of how people perceive that today was critical because then I knew what I was working with. Some of it was, oh, you build those really pretty things and, and we go in and take it in your learning management system to, oh, we have this really robust leadership program to, I don't know what that team does. I've never worked with them. And so gathering all of those themes was really critical. But then I flipped it and said, if this was working really well, and you were actually looking at this as an investment rather than an expense, how would that change your view of this type of work? Uh, because in the beginning, you can't start throwing out L&D terms and saying, oh, we're going to talk about instructional design and training and user experience. And like, nobody cares. They don't. You have to find a way to latch into what are the operational needs of the business? And then how is this value stream contributing to that. 
Uh, so the listening tour is really, really important to gather themes, but it's also a way to start early promotion and going after some things that are uh, quick wins to start to get some momentum. Some of that was just having comprehensive guides for onboarding. That was a quick win for us. The content and information was already out there. It was just all over the place. So we pulled it into a singular guide for a new hire, for a hiring manager, and for a leader. What conversations do you need to have in your first 90 days? What are the things that matter coming into this organization? It wasn't just focusing on training. Training is a point in time thing because it's for new or changes that are happening. Training and development are not the same thing. And I had to help break down the differences between training, development, and true education. Uh, But that listening tour gave me the footing to then go inward with my own team. You have to get your house right before you can start telling everybody else that their house needs fixed too. So I spent the whole first year, I'm sure people felt a certain kind of way about it. Like, what are you doing? You know, we're not seeing a whole lot happening out in the org. Well, if I didn't get my team right and I'm sitting there and saying we're going to produce and provide and assess and measure and we weren't actually doing those things, it, it would have been a really bad move. So I went inward mm-hmm. first to get my my immediate direct report team structured in a way where we could actually deliver on the things we, we said we were going to. Now my mm-hmm. focus is outward to start aligning things across the business, whether that's restructuring, simply aligning, finding common ground to associate. But it was really helped, helping to define, you know, now and in going into really the, the big bulk of our work of transformation, which is the next two years, is now we have a common understanding of what this could be. And if you don't take the time to establish that, and that looks totally different, Andy, in different companies, you have to know the pace, you have to know the acceptance of change, you have to know what keeps people up at night, what are the things that they're focused on, and how is the work that you're doing actually helping or hindering that? So if you don't spend that time up front to really build a relationship, you can't move from order taker to advisor overnight. So, you know, you have to suck it up a little bit to be a little bit of an order taker to move into that space. And I would say we're just on that transition right now. Okay. That's the next thing I was going to ask you about was, first and foremost, I appreciate you explaining that process. And I'm sure that there was some frustration may not be the right word, but, you know, maybe concern because or nervousness because, okay, this is a big role and there's always, a, a, I think, a tendency where we want to try to prove our value quickly <laughs> when someone's you know, giving us a big title or paying us a bunch of money. Or just when we get into a new job, we're like, okay, I want to come in there and prove my value by doing stuff. But really, the best right approach, as you mentioned, is to start by evaluating, listening, setting your strategy, getting your, your house in order, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that takes some time. Along the way, I'm sure you're starting to get lots of requests from people who are finding out what your role is, what you're doing, who feel like they have a need for training. How do you discern those and decide what to work on, what to put off and what to maybe investigate further so that you aren't just an order taker, but you are being more strategic in your role as CLO? Yeah. All great questions. And I love this because it's the reality. And I would love to tell you that there's a tried and true approach to that. That's where the listening and the relationship building matters so much. 
But there's a lot of standards and performance practices within the work that we do. And so a lot of people don't know that. You get the challenge sometimes of, oh, anybody can go in and train or anybody can learn to be an instructional designer. Uh, And there's tools that help equip us to do that, but these really are skilled niche areas. And so I had to translate that for folks to say, look, would you want somebody just jumping into the role of a nurse? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, you have to think about learning and development in the same capacity because that can make or break the product and it can make or break the service. And so when I think about, you know, all of the things, especially coming in with a role that didn't exist before, people will define that if you don't. Right. And so there were already expectations set before I even arrived in people's minds of this is what I expect this person to do. And so you have to unpack that and break that down. I also don't have a problem with having what feels like a hard conversation. And I think those skills are so critical. Sometimes we focus so much about having a seat at the table. I don't even care about that. I'm like, what is it that we're trying to do here? That the seat happens. And the influence Mm. happens when you connect to what people are trying to accomplish. So leaders inherently don't really care how many people are going through a course. They want to know how that's helping them build better performance. Right. And they want to understand how, how this is helping their folks to be better equipped, especially that frontline leader space. Boy, that's such a tricky role because you're sandwiched between being right above an individual contributor And then not feeling necessarily like you always have full decision-making authority, but you're in the day-to-day work and have to make snap decisions. So that's the group that matters to me when it comes to development, you know, and, and connecting to the work. We have a lot of terminology in any industry, and it's breaking that down into its most simple form of what are we trying to do here? How do we want people to feel about working here? What's the value that we want them to be able to have? Do they feel appreciated? And then three is if you don't have rules of engagement established, and that could be organizationally, that could be at the unit level, that could be at the just the team level. You have to start there because people don't know what the expectation is if you haven't said it. And a job description is not the expectation. So it's having those conversations mm-hmm. to say what. How do we communicate here? What are the things that are unspoken that maybe we don't talk about, but are a reality and something that could really be preventative? But L&D, just like tech and some of those, you, you have to help people understand the language, but don't let the language and the semantics be a barrier in the conversation. So I very rarely bring up learning mm. theories and all of these other things because I know yeah. those things. My team knows those things. We know how we apply those things. But at the end of the day, it's not about forcing our expertise. Consultation comes from influence. And so we just had to start taking on small projects so we could show the output. And that's been really, really helpful for us. Consultation comes from influence. I like that. And what I heard there is it's really important to get to know the strategic objectives of the you know executives, influential people involved. Think about, consider the results that they're trying to accomplish because as you mentioned, they don't care about the the ratings or the methodology as much as they care about, are you getting results? Are you doing them the right way? Are we changing behaviors? Are we you know, increasing 
you know, patient scores or revenue or whatever your KPIs are that you're looking at. And you need to build that trust along the way, which means you may need to take some of the smaller things to start and prove yourself and build that trust, build the relationships and earn that proverbial seat at the table, which will come in the long run as you are seen more in strategically by those people. Yeah. Well, and I think the word order taker has a lot of layers. And so mm. I, I I really want to put that plug in there. And I think Dr. Keith Keating nailed this in his recent book, The Trusted Advisor, as he talks about, you have to remember that folks are having orders being given to them. And so oftentimes by the time that gets to a learning department, they're, they're receiving that from somewhere else. So what we're trying to do is, and again, that's why it's not an overnight process. You can't go from, there's a, there's a culture built here where I hand you something and you produce a product. This is a shift to, yeah, we're in the business of products, but a product could be a program, a pathway, mm-hmm. expectations for development, behavioral competencies, but it's also flipping it to learning as an organization's job. It's not a department's job. Managers, you have a responsibility to invest in your own learning, to grow in the care of your people. It's not the learning department's job to make you good at what you do. It's our Mm. job to provide the environment and the pathways for you to engage in. It's your job equally to invest in that. And so for so long, it's been, if this didn't work, it was a failure on the learning team. Now it's an organizational failure. And that's hard for people to hear that. But when you start thinking in terms of we have a shared ownership in this work, just like we have a shared ownership in work with DEI, you have to see these areas as operational areas that have a value stream. So, hey, Mm. I'm a fellow operator. My operational area just happens to be from the learning lens. Yeah, that completely makes sense. Now, as you got in, oh, and, and, and funny, you mentioned Dr. Keith Keating and his new book. I just booked him, I actually talking to him later today and just booked him for an interview oh, on the super. podcast as well. So excited uh, to dig into that and uh, great to hear that it's, it's been valuable for you. As you got into this and you start developing the strategy, responding to some of those requests, developing the strategy, I remember you told me before you had three strategic pillars you've developed, right? What's, what's kind of been your approach since then? to talent development and learning and development at at Penn State Health? Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, it's not like other roles in a hospital system where you you inherently know what a chief medical officer does and you inherently know what a chief financial officer does. Learning roles are highly dependent on the culture and the construct. And so this was literally reshaping the construct that everybody knew and helping them to understand that the title is advocacy, but that there actually is a whole best practice around the work that we do. And I think for me, the strategy is just the, what's the approach that we're taking to make that clear for folks. And so Andy, that was really designed to be a starting point to say, gosh, when you think about learning and organizational development for us at Penn State Health, and all the things that we do, because we have an academic mission we have to uphold. We're directly tied with the College of Medicine, which makes us really unique and cool. So, you know, we have a source for physicians and advanced practice providers and all these really, really neat things. But also learning and organizational development isn't the same thing as higher ed 
right? K, K through 12. It's they're, they're different strategies. They have synergies between them, but they're different. So when I looked at this, it was finding a really simple way to have three areas that are highly reliant on each other. So the first one was learning and development. So that's our investment in leadership, professional development, and the technologies that we use in order to enable that. The second branch is organizational development, which is about helping leaders and teams own and implement change, foster high-performing cultures, and then effective structures. uh, structures. That effective word is so critically important. It doesn't matter if we have fantastic programs that aren't resulting in, in the meaningful behavioral things that we need within our organization. So effective requires that we have measurement. How do we assess it and know that we need it? How do we know it's actually working? And then the third piece is workforce development, which really didn't exist at all at a system level. This was more done departmentally. And listen, we have a fantastic just base of employees who are constantly volunteering, supporting community colleges, getting people excited about STEM but also, it was our job to help educate in a healthcare system. You can literally have any job you want. So often, folks think about that as I can be a doctor or a nurse. Nope, you can lead mm-hmm. logistics and supply chain and environmental services. You can be an engineer or a data scientist. So, this was really about career pathways through our student rotations, our college and community partners, and then how are we helping to. Uh, skill our workforce. So those are the three pillars that we have, but the Mm. tactics from that, you know, vary depending on what it is that we're focused on. We talked a little bit about the listening tour and some of the assessment you did and building relationships. You know, how do you assess where are the right areas to invest at the right times, right? Because I'm sure there's tons of things you could be doing, limited resources, everybody's in this situation, right? How did you think about where do we want to go first? Is it leadership development, you know, workforce development, career, technical skills? Like, how do you think about what to, what to address when? Yeah, so I went after the major, major things that impact the majority of the operational things that we do here. And there's two that come to mind immediately is a sound orientation onboarding process. And what are the behavioral competencies that we say matter here that actually show up in the work? And that isn't this laundry list of like 35 things, it's five. So we're knee deep in this fiscal year, which will run through July, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bleed into the following year, is to standardize all of our processes around day one orientation Because when that looks different and you feel like you're at a different company, that's not a good thing, depending on where you're sitting, right? And that's just part of a growing healthcare system. Everybody has their flavor and unique demographic area, and you have to be inclusive of that. But there are certain processes that really shouldn't look different for a reason. So how are we helping people get stood up and efficiently working in the things that they have to have in their first 30 days? And then how are we growing them their first year? Because that's an experience thing. And the stats tell us, you can pull a lot of literature on this, that folks are making a decision in their first 90 days on whether they're going to stay with you based off of that orientation experience. So how well did I feel like I connected? Did I have to work really hard to build relationships? Were people welcoming? And then are the tools easy to use? 
Do I know where to go for information? Do I have a buddy who's helping me in this process when I have questions? And do I feel like I can ask questions? So that's Mm. that side of it. And then the second piece was, do we actually uphold the behaviors that we say matter here? So you can have your values, but if there's not a way to say we're not upholding them and what do we do about that? So you have to have a, you have to have guardrails for when those Mm. things aren't happening because people can see that immediately of, Oh, we talk about those things, but I saw X leader acting in this way consistently and nothing's being done about it. Right. So it's not Mm. this punitive system. It's meant to be a safety net to say, we actually care about this so much that you can't act like this. And we're going to give you the grace and the coaching to get better at it. But if you can't, there's another conversation that we're going to have. And that's the reality. And and that's why it's important for individuals who are exploring coming into your organization. They need to know what you're about. They need to be able to see that because it's not about fit. It is about decision. And can I contribute to a culture like that? Does that align with my own personal values? That's a very individual choice that people should be able to make before they even apply and then in the application process, that becomes even more clear for them to make that decision. So we don't run into, and it's a lot of work, Andy. It is a lot of work and it takes a lot of teams. This is so much bigger than learning and development. This is coordination across your human resources and your operational leaders. And so it takes a village to do a lot of this work. But when you have alignment and what we say matters here and how we execute on that, that makes a world of difference. And I think we're just now moving into that really great space, which is exciting to me. Mm, Very cool. I remember when we talked before, you also talked about revamping learning and development and talked about some of the the fundamentals of what you want people to be learning. One of them was self-leadership, something that I'm espousing all the time, talking to people about. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So it's having just three quadrants within that development arena where people can tie that to something. And it's not a novel framework. I think a lot of organizations are using this in different ways, but it's really self, others, org, right? So I have to have control over myself. I have to have situational awareness. I have to be able to regulate my emotions. I have to understand what are triggers for me, right? So when I get mad, what are the things that typically do that for me? But how do I manage that? So if I if I can't get that right, it is so hard to be a leader of people who have people in their care. So you got to get yourself in check. And this is for executives all you know down. This is everybody in our organization has a responsibility in their self-ownership, self-leadership. So we actually have a pathway, which is homegrown. I have this really incredible team just so creative and thoughtful, who really took this to the extreme. And it it includes one of our signature courses with crucial learning, with crucial conversations. And I usually don't promote certain courses from vendors at the level that I do this one. And the reason I believe in this one so much is it has all the core things, whether the conversation is crucial or not, to learn how to talk with people who are different than you, who have a different perspective. How do I find common ground? And I don't have to like you to do that. I respect you as a human, right? And and this is the skill that time after time after time, I can teach you functional and operational. But if you don't know how to work with people and you can't be a voice of reason in a room that's chaos 
and you can't find ways to help settle people down to say, hey, maybe now is not the time to talk about this, but we need to come back to it. That's the skill that matters that AI and other generative things cannot solve for us. That human interaction piece is where the majority of the work happens. We're constantly in a state of negotiation and finding ways to say, actually, we're on the same team. We might not agree on all the processes we're taking, but we agree on the direction. And if you can get people to agree on the direction, there's a lot of things you can do in between that to get there. So the communication skills to me, you know, when thinking about self-leadership is you've got to build those first. And some people might look at that and say, gosh, you don't have a ton of programming. No, we don't, because we're really picky about that. There's core skills that if you get really good at these couple of things, it's actually going to extend into 20 other things because you've gotten so good at that. So you're not going to see Penn State Health have 20 programs. We're going to have more like five to 10, some self-driven, some instructor-led, but it's less about the delivery and what we're doing and more about how we're cumulatively building those human skills, the confidence, the ability to interact with people who are different from you, your motivation to go and learn something. And then the connection on the workforce development side to all those actual education spaces, whether that's a certificate or a boot camp or a degree, whatever that looks like, that's where those things align to each other. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And so it sounds like as you build these this limited portfolio of programs, right, because you don't want a million things, you want them to connect with each other, that you are working with some outside providers as well as creating things internally. So it's kind of a, a combination of both. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends on what your organization needs. I think it depends on your budget. I am not a fan of all or nothing. So I don't believe mm-hmm. everything should totally be done internally. There's some really great stuff out there. Why reinvent the wheel? But also you can't put your your, your work and the needs of your organization, which you live in, in the hands of an outsider completely either. So I think there's right. a really healthy balance. And that's where having a strategy of what are we trying to do here? I don't go for products first. I go for what are the skills that we're trying to build here? Where are we trying to get to? What's our mission? How are we actually achieving that? And then how does this product suite and ecosystem help us get there? And if it's not, it's not staying. And that's where the measurement sources matter is it doesn't matter if people liked it, if it's not actually showing up in the workplace. So yeah, I love level one reactions and those kinds of things of like, hey, this thing was really cool. And then three months later, you don't see anybody using it, doing it, talking about it. That's a problem. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You want actual behavior change and results from the work that you're doing. One of the things that I know you're passionate about, I've worked on is creating more psychological safety and and mutual purpose inside the organization. I wonder if you could talk more about that and how you approach that. Yeah. There's so much great literature on this and I would encourage people to really understand, you know, what the definition is of psychological safety. And I was just, I should have pulled this up with us, Andy, Amy Edmondson. Amy, yeah, Dr. Amy Edmondson from Harvard, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she coined this term, and I I think in healthcare especially, that has a place within the overall safety wheel. But you have to understand that psychological safety is not necessarily the same as physical safety. It's not the same thing as patient safety. They have ties Mm. to each other. But when I think about psychological safety, I try to break that down in the most simple terms. Do I feel like a member of a team? 
Do I know yeah. the rules of engagement and am I included in those? Right. That I talk about rules of engagement all the time. What are the things that we do here? How do we communicate? <clears throat> and you have to do that with your team early and often. So when you get off track, you can come back to that list that you co-created. Right. So, hey, we're heading down this path. We didn't agree to that. What's going on? But psychological safety is also not saying whatever you want to say when you mm-hmm. want to say it. Right. So it's not, oh, what psychologically say it's not this selfish thing of everybody has to accommodate everything that I need. It's having the wherewithal to understand, you know, how, how am I showing up into this place and contributing to that or how am I detracting from it? So in our own team, I can give you an example. You know, we have open forums where we put it out there to say, I need you to pick this idea apart. What's great about it? What's not so great about it? One, it takes the focus off of, hey, so-and-so presented it. That doesn't matter. It's that we're focused on the problem or the idea, not the person. Psychological safety is so helpful. And Liz Fosslin, so Big Feelings, those mm-hmm. books, excellent with this. She has great pictorials around this as well. And Molly West Duffy around that it's not you against me, it's you and me against this thing. And psychological Mm. safety, when I think about that visually, is about us working together to do this thing. And how do we do that? And we might disagree on how we get there, but I'm committed enough to want to have the best possible relationship with you that we're going to work through that together. And that might not always be easy. But psych safety can be as simple as we have a session where people can talk and, and you can't have the gap in the behavior of saying this is okay. And then the leader comes back around it or a member on the team comes back around it and completely poo-poos an idea and the person. Mm. Right. So you have to make sure that the behavior and what we said this thing was match, or you will actually won't have psychological safety in a lot of organizations. <clears throat> I feel it's, it's hard. <clears throat> it's hard to make sure that this is consistently happening. And I think that's where your organizational development wing or people who do that type of work are so helpful is to help people get back on track when you have a gap between performance and how we actually show up when you have a, a gap between what we say is our system, but the actions we actually take. So if I'm in a meeting with a leader My job as a leader in this organization, whether it's my meeting or not, if behavior is going sideways, I have a responsibility Mm -hmm. to to do something about that, whether I own that meeting or not. And that's the back to the self-ownership piece that we were talking about earlier. You have to have self-ownership to say it doesn't matter what my title is within Mm -hmm. this lane. It doesn't matter if I'm only over this specific area. I have a responsibility in this organization that when we're not doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, that I can help cultivate and get people back on track. Mm-hmm. That's oh, scary absolutely. for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the leader's role in creating more psychological safety, more inclusion, more belonging. We need our leaders to be part of that. You know, the top level executives or L&D can't do that on our own, right? We can give direction and guidance, but we need leaders involved in creating that psychological safety, which is going to create more innovation, create more engagement, more retention. There's so many, so many positive impacts of what Dr. Amy Edmondson calls the fearless, creating a fearless organization, right? Where yeah. people can come to work without any kind of fear and just amazing work there. And I'm so glad that you've pursued that at Penn State Health. There's so many things, other things I want to ask you about, but we, we've run out of time. We've got to wrap up here. 
Hillary, is there anything else that you would want people in talent development to know about the work you've been doing over the last couple of years? And if anybody wants to reach out to you, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So one, pace and grace. Our world is constantly evolving, but get really good at the fundamentals. The fundamentals aren't changing. Know how to assess your work. Know how to measure your work. Know how to build relationships. If you can get those three things right, the rest of that is going to work itself out. So those things matter so much. And then I'm on LinkedIn. You'll see a really happy, smiley picture, and I usually have a diversity push of the month behind me. So I, you know, I don't have blocked messaging. You can just shoot me a message. I'd be happy to talk with you. And the last thing I would add, Andy, I also don't have this figured out all the time. I don't. So it's not coming into any work that we're doing with this preconceived notion that you need to solve for it all. If we solve for it all, we probably wouldn't be talking right now. It's changing all the time. Right. Yep. And you are, I can, I can attest a happy, smiley person as we're recording this between six and 7 AM where you are. And uh, you came in full of energy, maybe not so much light in the hotel room where you are, but but full of energy and enthusiasm. So uh, thank you so much for that, Hillary. Thanks for joining me so early in the morning. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to talk more soon in our bonus Q&A. But thanks again for being here. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Andy. All right, that will do it for my interview with Hillary Miller from Penn State Health. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Covered a lot of ground in that interview, in that conversation, talking about things like, first of all, her background and how she got into L&D from being a teacher, healthcare and record conversions, building community remotely in her role as the chief learning officer, how she approached the new role and uncovered needs. We talked about breaking down differences between training, development, and true education and the importance of building relationships in that role. And she harped many times on not worrying about getting a seat at the table, but focusing more on making an impact and saying that that seat will come. Talked about consultation comes from influence, and she recommended a few different approaches. And in the book, The Trusted Advisor by Keith Keating, who I'll be having on this podcast soon. And she also talked about the three strategic pillars that they have there, learning and development, organizational development, and system and community. So much more great content in there. I hope you enjoyed that. And you will stay tuned for our bonus Q&A conversation, which will be coming out in just a couple of days. We're also going to get Hillary Book to be a guest speaker in our Talent Development Think Tank membership community. So stay tuned for that. If you're not a member, go check out our website. It's tdtt.us. We have a special discount for podcast listeners when you join. Just click on community and enter the code podcast when you join for 10% off. This is going to be a great place for you to connect with other listeners, other members members of the community to join our weekly calls, hear from guest speakers, learn about the latest trends and connect with other great people in talent development. The website again is tdtt.us and just click on community. Thank you again for listening. I appreciate you listening, sharing, reviewing, subscribing, all the things and sharing with others. And I look forward to talking with you more soon. Cheers. Cheers.